This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. The book of Philippians, chapter 1. Uh, this is where we were this morning. <coughs> Uh, we began a new series of messages on the book of Philippians called Paul's Love Letter to the Philippians. And uh, we set the scene. We did a lot of introductory work this morning. And just we want to continue from there tonight. But just briefly to remind you that Paul here is writing to this church in Philippi, uh, which is one of his uh, most favorite congregations. That uh, emotionally and spiritually, it held a lot for him. It, it was a great encouragement to his ministry. And uh, he's writing here 10 years after he founded this church in Philippi. And this church in Philippi, Philippi was a, a Roman colony. And that meant that it had got special status from Rome. A lot of Romans lived there. Of course, it used to, it was Macedonia, it used to be Greek but now mainly Romans who live there. And it was a very prosperous city, beautiful city, big city, quarter a million to half a million people that lived in this city. And we talked this morning how Paul and, and uh, Silas and Timothy and Dr. Luke, uh, how they raised this church up. And when we say it was a Roman colony, uh, because it had been awarded special status, then the Romans who lived there, uh, they loved to pay, pay worship to the emperor. And this was at a, a time when emperor worship was very popular. And at specific times throughout the year, the emperor would demand worship. And uh, people had to burn a little bit of incense to the emperor and call him uh, Lord and Savior. So you can see that for Christians... Uh, this was going to be uh, a clash, obviously. And so here, 2,000 years ago, uh, here was a government, and they were dictating things that a Christian could not in all conscience do because of their Christian faith. And we live 2,000 years later, and today we have governments all over the world, including our own, who ha are making diktats and decrees and passing laws that's going to make it increasingly uncomfortable for the Christian when it comes to conscience. Uh, even though the Bible says that we, Jesus said that we should give tribute unto Caesar, what's due to Caesar. But yet when it comes and Caesar demands something that is anti-God and anti-Bible, then we have got a choice to make. Do we go with Caesar or do we go with God? And of course, obviously, we go with God. And so that's the situation that they were now facing. And the apostle Paul, he was in Rome. This is 10 years later since they found it. He was in Rome. He was under house arrest for two years, awaiting his trial. And he was on trial for the defense of the gospel, the defense of his faith in Jesus Christ. And it was an important trial coming up because the Romans were looking into this uh, this sect of Christianity that has been growing and burgeoning throughout the empire. 
in the Apostle Paul, the great missionary evangelist, was one of the ones who was uh, responsible for most of it, actually. And what we find is that they were going to come to some kind of a decision whether that these Christians would be uh, simply uh, an official uh, offshoot of Judaism. And if they were an official offshoot of Judaism, Judaism was accepted as an official uh, religion among the Romans, and they would be okay. But of course the Jews were fighting against that. Because as far as the Jews were concerned, they were just a sect. Uh, they were rabble. They were, you know, they were just anathema to the Jews. And they didn't want anything to do with them. In fact, they wanted them stamped out. And so there was a, a tussle going on here. And, uh, and, and that was the background to one of the reasons why Paul wrote this. Because what was happening to him, he could see that would be happening to them. If not was happening, certainly in the near future, they were going to have to face this too. So he's writing this to encourage them. Now, I said this morning that tonight I would say to you that uh, this is the reason why this little book of Philippians is so important for us today, because here we are facing challenges regarding our faith and regarding how the world and particularly how governments see our faith. And increasingly, they're becoming anti-Christian, and we can all see that. Now, some say that we're we're overcooking that egg a bit, and, and really it's not as bad as that, but actually it is. And the more uh, the, the weeks and months and years go on, the more we're going to see this happening. As an example, for instance, I, I said to you last week in an entirely different context, different message, I said to you that there's coming a point when probably, because most churches are, have a charity status, and, and, and so that means we can get some tax back, tax that you would normally have to pay if you donate it to a charity. Then the charity gets that relief that you would have got. We get it. And I said last week that probably in the, in the near future, probably that there's going to come a point whenever they'll make demands on every charity. And, and how you respond to that demand will determine whether you'll actually get charity status. Now, at the minute in Northern Ireland, where we are, uh, there is a new charity commission, and they're going through all of the charities, and they're checking us all out and, uh, to see if we're worthy of charity status. And, and probably most churches, if not all, will get the charity status, and that's fine as far as it goes. But what about in six months' time? What about a year's time? What if the government makes a diktat and says that every charity has got to align themselves to certain things that we say? Well, this week, just since that, actually, the Christian Institute uh, has written something. And this was uh, the Daily Telegraph national paper. And they had got leaked to them something that the government was up to. Listen to this. Pastors, rabbis, and other religious leaders will be subject to government training and security checks and will have to enroll in a national register of faith leaders under leaked government legislation. The proposal, which appears in a draft version of the government's new counter-extremism strategy, was seen by the Sunday Telegraph, would affect Christian ministers and other religious leaders who wish to work in the public sector. So in other words, if you're a prison chaplain, or if you're a padre, or, or if you're a hospital chaplain, you're a prison padre, or you go into a school or university, anywhere you're out in the public and you're asked to speak, that's what it's saying. And so the Christian Institute has warned that it represents an attack on freedom of religion not seen since the 17th century. 
Spokesman for the Institute, Kiernan Kelly, said, if the reports are accurate, that the government is proposing turns the clock back on religious freedom more than 300 years. Not since the days of the notorious Test and Corporation Acts have we seen such a concerted attempt by a British government to restrict religious practice. We don't want to go back to those darker days of religious intolerance. Now, they mean that Christian leaders invited to speak to university Christian Union would be required to go on a government-approved training scheme before being allowed to speak to students. This is truly sinister proposal more in keeping with China or North Korea than a democracy built on the freedoms of the Magna Carta. So we would ask the government to think again and drop these dangerous plans immediately. According to the Sunday Telegraph, the leaked draft says that all faiths will have to maintain a national register of faith leaders and that the government will set a minimum level of training and checks. It will be compulsory for all faith leaders to join the register if they want to work with the public sector, including universities. The document also defines extremism. This is their definition. Vocal or active opposition to fundamental British values including democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and the mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. Not much tolerance these days for the Christian faith and belief, is there? Vocal or active opposition to fundamental British values. Part of the British values that is espoused by the present conservative government is saying that same-sex marriage, now that it's legal, that you have no say. 600,000 people signed a petition against it, and the British leader binned it, didn't even consider it, against the advice of his own party, didn't even consider it, said that those people are not in tune and not in step with today's world. They're out of step completely. So that's part of British values. So if we don't accept that, we could be classed as extremist. Say, now, David, you're going a bit far. No, I'm not. I'm not. It's set. Faith leaders have already criticized their proposals as an unwarranted intrusion into religious affairs by the state. Rabbi Nate James from West London Synagogue said this sounds unworkable and reads too much like too strong state intervention. Listen to this. The government could remove trustees from Christian charities including schools across England and Wales if they're deemed extremist, according to the leaked government legislation. The proposal which appears in draft version of the government's new counter-extremism strategy seen by the Sunday Telegraph could give new powers to the Charity Commission to sack trustees. It comes after a proposal to enact the National Register of Faith Leaders. And so it goes on, saying about trustees could be actually removed from trusts if they don't adhere to British values and other things. So here, after 2,000 years, here's a government today, a modern government today, who are making laws that's going to be difficult for Christians to accept. And that's the way it was when Paul was living, and he was fighting for the defense of the gospel. And he's writing to these Philippians, these uh, 
Philippian believers, he's writing to them to encourage them to hold fast and to stand firm. So let's begin to read now where we left off this morning. We left off at verse 11, so let's pick up in verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now let me give you three little headings for those three verses. Opposition and persecution of the church makes it grow bigger. Opposition and persecution of the church, verse 13, makes it grow brighter. Opposition and persecution of the church, verse 14, makes it grow bolder. Let's look at those three. Verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Obviously the Christians in Philippi, now Philippi is 800 miles away from Rome, but the word had spread. And obviously they were concerned, what is going to happen to Christians? How will this affect the gospel? Will this diminish Christianity? Will it stop growing? Will it be decimated? And Paul says, no, actually the opposite will happen. This will be for the furtherance of the gospel. This will make the church grow bigger. Do you remember just a few weeks ago on BBC, they showed that wonderful documentary of, of Bob and Alma McAllister, the veteran uh, missionaries to Congo, and how when they were there, how the rebels, the Congolese rebels, uh, who were fighting against, I think it was the Belgian government, uh, how they held them captive for six weeks and in the end lined them up and shot at them and, and martyred some of them. And then after that, how the McAllisters and, and all the missionaries actually had to leave. The government told them to leave for their own safety and, and so that the country could be settled again. But then after a few very short years, the McAllisters and others, they went back again to that same area. And the believers in that area could not believe that, that they had actually come back where, the, where their brothers and sisters had been martyred. But they did. And because of that, the church has begun to grow. And you saw in the documentary how that many, many years later, when Bob went back again, he's 90 year old, when he went back again, the churches were thriving. New churches had opened up in the very area, the very area where it seemed to be that the Christianity had been finished, it had been wiped out, it had been stopped in its tracks, but it hadn't. Actually, it was for the furtherance of the gospel. It's an old cliche, but it's true that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And everywhere where the church is suppressed and tries to be driven out and tries to be stopped, eventually in that area the church becomes bigger. It grows. China is a classic example. Under Mao Zedong, communist China wanted to destroy Christianity. And it looked like they almost succeeded. And successive Chinese atheist governments has tried to subdue Christianity, but they have not succeeded. In fact, the Christian church in China is growing at an alarming rate. It's probably the fastest growing section of the whole church in the world. So what does opposition and persecution do to the church? 
it makes it grow bigger. Paul says, what has happened to me is for the furtherance of the gospel. It's not to reverse it, it's to make it grow bigger. And it was true and he was right. Then he says, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. The palace guard, these elite troops we talked about this morning, who were guarding Paul in house arrest as he was awaiting his trial. Can you imagine those guys who were pagans and suddenly the, the, the greatest preacher the world has ever known and their designation is to guard him night and day. And he would take every single opportunity to witness to those fellas. And not only that, people, Christians, would come and visit him. And as they would talk about Christ and the gospel, these guards, they were, they were a captive audience. They, they, they had to hear. And then as he would dictate his prison epistle letters, they would hear every single word. No wonder at the end of it, Paul was able to say there's saints in Caesar's household. He had won some of them to Christ, so he had. You know, they had no choice. They were there. They were, he was chained to them. They, they had to listen. And I'm sure sometimes they didn't want to listen, but they had no choice. I, I remember years and years ago, Sally and I, we were in the Philippines. We were with Chrissy. Time Claire worked with Chrissy. And we were in a big, big prison in Manila, Montanlupa. Uh, Ferns, I don't know where you were ever in Montanlupa. You were, I'm sure, of course you were. And you know the size of that place. There's 25,000 inmates, and there's three sections. You know, there's, there's the, the highest security. There's minimum security and medium security. So, but they're all in big one, big massive compound. And, and maximum security is where the lifers are. And it's a, a brick building, so they can't mix with the ordinary populace. They're, they're confined. And when you go in there, as, as Ferns has been, and he can testify, when you go in there and you go up to, the, to, to where the cells are, I mean, it's, you see the cells, it's a long corridor. And at the end of the long corridor, there's a, like a foyer area, there's a, there's a big open area, and that's where you set up shop to have your meeting. And uh, the prisoners has got wooden drums and <laughs> what they made for drums and so forth. And there's a great big sign on the wall, Life Row Christian Fellowship. This is death row, actually, but they have Life Row Christian Fellowship. Now, not all, but many of the prisons are saved now because it's a bit like the American system. If you're a lifer, well, you could be there 20 years. You know, if you're in death row, you could be there 20 years before they execute you. Whenever we were there, the, the president then had made a rule that under her watch, nobody would be executed. You get life, but not executed. So there they are. And many of the Christians uh, in, in life row would come and they would sit around in plastic chairs and listen to you preach. But some wouldn't come. But they were in their cells and you could see them having a wee juke out at you now and again because you're a foreigner, you're a visitor, so you're a bit of curiosity. So they had a wee juke out at you. But they were captive. They couldn't get away. So they heard the sound of your voice. They couldn't go anywhere else. They had to stay there. So, to, so even though they didn't come personally to hear you, they couldn't not hear you because they were there. Well, that was a bit like these guards. They, they couldn't not hear Paul, and he would share with them. And in that dark place, at that dark time, Paul's light grew brighter. And the Christian church's light grows brighter during opposition and during persecution. 
And in the Christian church, during opposition and persecution, they become bolder. Listen to this, verse 14. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Ah, you'd think it would be the opposite, wouldn't you? You would think, now think for a moment. You would think, here's the greatest preacher in the world of the gospel, without question. And here he is, the most famous of all, and he's arrested, he's under house arrest for two years, he's going nowhere for the defense of the gospel. Now you would think that would strike fear into the hearts of believers, and they would say, well, if that could happen to him, it could happen to me, therefore I'm going to say nothing. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. I'm not going to say anything in the workplace. I'm not going to say anything in business. I'm not going to say anything in the street. I'm not going to share my faith. I'm not going to preach the word or gossip the gospel because I may end up in prison too. But the very opposite happened. Actually, they became bolder. That's what it says. Having become confident by my chains, not afraid, but confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They had grown bolder. In Acts chapter 4, Remember Peter and John, how they had uh, healed the lame man at the beautiful gate? And then how in chapter 4, and then he preached a great sermon to those who were there. And then in chapter 4 it says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was evening already. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, the elders, and the scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had sent them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this dare judge for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is, a, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, that means they were not trained and educated in the rabbinical ways, that means. When they saw they were untrained and uneducated men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And then if you go on down, how whenever they were... Uh, 
Well, let, well, let's just read. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John perceived that they were on train, and seeing this man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has gone, been done through them. It's evident to all who dwell at Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. And from now on that they speak no to no man in, the, in this name. And so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all of all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why do the heathen nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, the government and the people were against us, were sent, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Ah, no holding back. chapter 8 it says Paul or Saul was consenting to his death this is regarding Stephen being the martyr Saul was consenting to his death at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem they all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him and as for Saul he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging them and committing them to prison. It seemed to be that the more that they persecuted the church, the greater the church became. The more that grew, the brighter it was, and the bolder it got in its proclamation of the gospel. And so Paul writing to the Philippians here is encouraging them to hold firm, to stay true, and not to give up or to give in. Then he said, Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. What's he saying there? 
He says, since this happened to me, it has given many people great boldness and confidence to share their faith. But he said, there are some who are sharing the faith, who are preaching the gospel, but for an entirely wrong motive. Now, he may, we don't know, but he may, refer, he may be referring to Jewish believers who, you remember, wanted the Gentiles to submit to Jewish laws. And they didn't like Paul because Paul was against that. Paul was a grace preacher, and he was against that. So it could have been them and who were preaching in a way that was trying to add affliction to Paul to try to make his case more difficult. But he says, do you know what? Whether they're doing it out of a good motive or whether they're doing it out of a bad motive, whether they're doing it because they love me or whether they're doing it because they hate me. He says, I don't care as long as that gospel is being preached because God can use it. Even if it comes out of a wrong mouth for a wrong reason, a wrong motive, God can still use his word. God can speak through a donkey, can't he? And he did in the Bible. So Paul says, do you know what? I don't care either way. As long as that word about Christ and his crucifixion is going forth, he says, I rejoice in that at least. Nothing is going to get this man down. Then he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, Paul was quite confident that he was going to be released. And he says, your prayers and the Holy Spirit are helping me. That's what gives me this confidence. And then he says, anyway, I don't want to stand before the Lord ashamed. I want to remain bold and confident in Christ. Then he says... So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. That's a powerful statement. So what he's saying is, look, while I'm alive in this body, I'm going to use this to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I die because of that, if this body dies because of that, so be it. I'll still use it to glorify Christ. But I'm interested why he used that term about his body. And my thoughts go back to that incident with the first martyr Stephen. Because Paul was the chief witness. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was the chief witness. He was a young man, but he was the chief witness. And he remember what happened. He remember how the... Well, Saul started to, to give a defense for himself. And then he preached a very powerful sermon about the Jewish nation. And then how they killed the prophets. And then he told them how they crucified Christ and killed the prophets before them and all the rest of it. And you stiff-necked people. And he really, he really laid into them. And it says they gnashed on him with their teeth. They were so angry. And then they decided to stone him. And young man Saul was standing there. They laid their cloaks at his feet. 
And they watched him. And you remember what Saul said as he was being stoned to death. He looked up and he says, I see the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father and his face shone like an angel. Physically, his body began to shine with the glory of God. And then just before he died, he says, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. In other words, Lord, I forgive them for this. Paul couldn't shake that. Because the very next chapter, chapter 8, as it goes on and into chapter 9, he's on the Damascus Road and that's where he meets Christ. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks, the goads. Your conscience is bothering you. When did that start? I'm sure it started when he stood looking at what was happening to Saul. He'd given his life, even his very body was battered and broken. He had given it for the Savior. And here's Paul says, whether it's my life as I live for Christ or whether it will be my body, it all belongs to Christ. I'll give it to Jesus. What a tremendous testimony. What faith. What determination. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by my life or by my death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. All of his life from that moment of salvation, Lord, what do you want me to do? And from that moment on, Jesus became the center of his life. Nothing else really mattered. It was Jesus and Jesus only. That was the most important thing in his life, to follow Jesus and to preach his gospel. For me to live was Christ. I don't know if any of us can fully say that. We all have different things that we live for. But I'd like to think, I'm hoping that all of us, our heart is to try to have Christ at the very top. The most important, right at the heart of everything that we do and how we live. This is what Paul's saying. For me to live is Christ. And to die, it's gain. Not that Paul had a morbid kind of a death wish. He had a lot to live for. But at the end of this, he was confident he'd be released. But if not, if this means my death, it's gain. It's win-win. <laughs> Paul just couldn't see anything to lose here. It's win-win. If I live, I win. If I die, I still win. <laughs> it's gain to me. I'm not sure if we're there yet either. Hmm? Maybe this life still has a big hold on us. But not for Paul. I remember he's writing to these Philippians. 
They were going to face some very, very difficult days and tough times. They actually were facing them. When he, when he boasts about them in 2 Corinthians 8, about how they helped him financially, he says, out of their deep affliction. So they were going through some stuff. So he's encouraging them. If you have to lay down your life, boys, it'll still be game. It's win-win. We can't lose in this life. Huh. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 9 says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be received things done in his body according to all that is done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I trust also are well known in your consciences. Look at verse 6. For we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. But we are confident, yes, we are well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. This seems to be a little theme that Paul has and expounds on it here to the Philippians. While we're on this earth, we're absent from the Lord. But when we die, we'll be present with the Lord. That's why it's gain. There would be no gain in death if it wasn't for the Lord. There'd be no gain whatsoever in death if our bodies was put into the ground for a million years to turn to dust. There'd be no gain in that, sure there wouldn't. There'd be no gain if you had to sleep for a million years. There'd be no gain in that. Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's gain. And that's why when you conduct the funeral of a saint of God, you have the confidence that it's absent from the body, it's present with the Lord. It's gain. So for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So he's letting them know, listen, I would love to go and be with the Lord, but my work's not done. There's still much fruit to come in. And so I'm going to be around for a while, so be encouraged. I haven't left you. In fact, I'm planning on coming to see you. That's what he's saying. He's, he's, he's already been incarcerated for four years, two here and two in, in Caesarea. But his faith has never wavered, sure it hasn't. He's still trusting the Lord with all of his heart. And he's still full of joy and confidence. This man is extraordinary, isn't he? Tremendous. 
What an inspiration. And so he says, and to be with Christ, which is far better. You know, the Bible says that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his sins. But why is something that's so precious to the Lord so painful for us? Think about that. Why is something that's so precious to the Lord the death of his sins? Why is that so painful for us? It's painful for us because we live in the natural. We live in the here and now. We can't see beyond the veil. If we could, and if we saw our loved ones the way God sees them, the way heaven sees them, then it wouldn't be so painful for us. We miss naturally, humanly. It would be unreal if you didn't miss a loved one. There'd be something wrong with you if you didn't miss them. Of course you do. But what helps us and what encourages us, if we can think for one moment, they're with the Lord. And what joy and what pleasure and what delight they have in his presence. And one day, we will join them in that joy and in that delight and in his presence. That helps to ease the pain somewhat. And so here he is. And then he, he changes tack a little bit here in verse 27. We'll be through in a moment. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or am absent I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel ah. in the midst of all of this challenge you're going through in times of difficulty and pressure and stress and uncertainty. He says, live right and live clean and live good before this world. Let your conduct, in the old King James it talks about your conversation. But it means conduct. It's not talking about your words, it's talking about your works. Your conduct. What others see in us. Paul is saying to these people, hey, what do you see in me? Look at what I'm going through. What do you see in me? How am I handling this? He says, you do the same. Others will be watching you. They'll be looking at you, going through the pressures and the stresses and strains of life because you're a believer and you're coming under pressure. Let them look at you and let them see your good conduct. Let them see how you're living right. And what will that do? And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which to them is a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. What does that mean? Let me just read that portion just quickly from the New Living Translation. Do not be intimidated by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed but that you're going to be saved 
even by God himself. <laughs> don't weaken, don't slacken, don't be afraid of them, don't be intimidated. Stand up, stay true, stand tall. They're the ones that's going to be frightened in the end because they know that you cannot be defeated. There's something in you that is greater. Clifford quoted earlier this morning, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And then finally tonight he says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. For you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. Ah. You know, if you just stop there, you could conjure up in your mind all kinds of things that's been granted you because of Christ, because you're in Christ. But here's the bit we don't like. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. See why this epistle is relevant to us today? Now we're blessed at this moment. No physical harm is coming to us. Yes, there's tensions and pressures and that will increase. But at this moment, there's no physical harm coming to us. But there's other parts of the world where it is physical. And it is true and real suffering, physically. There's others who are losing their jobs, they're losing their business, they're being driven out of their homes because they name the name of Jesus and they believe the name of Christ. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. Paul said, actually, this is a privilege that you have been granted to suffer for his name. <laughs> That's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? That's the way Peter looked at it. Peter thanked God that they were able to suffer shame for his name. Some of us, if somebody offends us, we're off. That's it. We're off. Don't come to church for about six months and offend it. God help us. How are you going to stand if somebody wants to take your life? What are you going to do then? Paul says this is a privilege. <laughs> actually a privilege that we could actually suffer for Christ. It's been granted on behalf of Christ to suffer for his name. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. And so he's giving himself as the example to those believers who are about to and just about to go into a period of tribulation, difficulty. So he says, keep your eye on the ball. Don't give up. Don't give in. You'll grow bigger. You'll grow brighter. You'll grow bolder if you don't give up and you don't give in. What an encouragement. Eh? What an encouragement. This is why we need to read these epistles. Because the things that happened in those days are happening today. Same devil with a different hat on. Hasn't changed. 
So we need to know to encourage ourselves and help ourselves in the Lord. Amen? Amen. So God willing, next Sunday morning we will continue into chapter 2. I told you this morning you can read this whole book in 10 minutes. Literally in 10 minutes all you need to take just to read that through. It's a small little letter. But it's packed with powerful stuff. Some of the greatest New Testament statements are right in this little book of Philippians. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that in these days that we live in, that the church has got a great opportunity to shine for Jesus. Lord, give us all the courage and the strength and the wisdom, everything that we need to handle these days that lie ahead. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your Word. You've given us the weapons of this warfare. And Lord, we have our shield of faith and our helmet of salvation, our sword of the Spirit. And so Lord, we can win this battle in life. We can be victorious in Jesus' name. So we bless you for this. Courage us. Lift us up in our spirits. Let us know, Lord, in these days that we will shine for Jesus and that others will come to Christ through our testimony, through how we live this life in Jesus. So we give you thanks for this and his wonderful and precious name. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.